0: Episode 23, The Down and Back Boys. To those who have been following, the name of Benjamin Franklin Knowlton will not be unfamiliar. I was told by my mother some 20 years ago that Frank, as he was called, was what was known as a down and back boy. I have not been able to find any more information on this subject except that Frank did cross the plains several times in the years before he settled down with Rhoda but it makes a tidy timeline to talk about the down and back wagon trains, one of which brought George Swallow after addressing the handcart era. Down and back, or church trains, were a practical and economic solution for the next phase of emigration. The Utah Saints could send their own flour, beans, and bacon to feed new immigrants and use the savings to import needed supplies at the same time. Beginning in 1860, these trains also helped circumvent some of the difficulties brought on by the start of the Civil War, as there were grave concerns that any form of transportation would even be available to the incoming saints. Episode 22 dealt with the Captain Daniel D. MacArthur Church train with which George Swallow traveled. I would like to go back and explore some of the difficulties of their journey previous to picking up the assigned saints in Benton. Much of this is as reported by Don C. Johnson in the Springville Independent. The trains were regularly organized with captain, assistant captain, and four night guards, also an extra mounted man to drive the loose herd, all were well armed and a constant watch had to be maintained in order to protect the stock from those who were constantly on the alert to stampede the cattle and drive them off. Captain MacArthur's train left Springville, April 27th, 1868. They moved to the mouth of Provo Canyon with the intention to follow the route through that canyon, Provo Valley, over the Camas bench to the Weeper River, following thence down to the mouth of Echo Canyon, there striking the old emigrant trail via Salt Lake City. The mountain passes were filled with snow and the passage would be most difficult for such poor cattle. Easy stages were necessary as no feed was available except the wild native grasses, which were beginning to become quite plentiful and cover the ground with luxuriant green. For the first two weeks 10 miles per day was about the average travel at night the guard patrolled the camp to prevent the cattle from straying off and to keep thieves or rustlers from cutting out straying cattle for there were cattle thieves in that day and a strict guard must be kept all along the route even while yet in the territory two of the night guard would watch the first half of the night which extended until 1 a.m and the other two until morning when all would drive the oxen into camp. By this time the teamsters would have had breakfast and while they hitched up, the guard ate their breakfast and the train was ready to roll. The fourth day took the caravan a few miles up Parley's Canyon in a terrific blizzard of sleet and snow. The wind blew a gale and the fury of the wind and snow almost blinded the boys and drove the cattle nearly frantic. The canyon was narrow and the wagons were strung along for half a mile. The word was sent back along the line to unhitch and let the oxen loose, to browse in the wilds as best they could. The boys were drenched to the skin and the storm raged with increased fury until late in the night. Not a campfire gleamed for there was no fuel in sight. All went supperless to bed, except a few who may have had a bit of hardtack, jerked beef, or dried peaches brought from home, or a cold pone left over from dinner. Pone is an unleavened cornbread in the form of a flat oval cake and originally prepared with water by North American Indians and cooked in hot ashes. The bedding under the covers was dry, and as darkness settled over the wild and desolate scene, The clothing was removed and hung to dry as best it might, and the boys were soon steaming in their blankets, and despite the fact that the elements howled, mourned, bellowed, and roared without, were in dreamland, forgetful of hunger and cold. Much of their clothing would have frozen stiff overnight. The next morning the snow was six inches deep, but the wind had lulled. The sky was clear causing the temperature to be bitterly cold with much difficulty fuel was procured for the campfires and the breakfast cooked and a late start made the meals did not vary much from day to day hot pone for breakfast and usually enough baked for dinner bacon fried with the grease for sop instead of butter sometimes water was added and thickened with flour making it in the parlance of the road Dundefunk, or Skilligalley, and other such titles. Potatoes were on the bill of fare for the first month, also a little butter which was carried very nicely in the center of a sack of flour. Dried peaches, stewed, were much in evidence, and homemade sorghum was plentiful. These provisions, supplemented with fresh beef and wild game occasionally, constituted the bill of fare for the 5 months' journey. Water, and that bad enough at times, was the only beverage. The train moved slowly, the grass was getting fine, and as the train moved from day to day, one could observe the erstwhile sad-eyed and wobbly, almost winter-killed oxen begin to get thunder in their necks and flush upon their bones. Many were unbroken, and some had never been yoked before this trip, and many were mismatched and resented the new and strange life. Beyond Hams Fork in western Wyoming, for miles the graders were at work, and all was life, animation, and novelty. Here in the wilderness, with wild nature on every side, man with the plow, scraper, and blasting powder, and an army of men and teams as far as the eye could reach, was grade being made for the great continental highway which connected the oceans with bands of steel. One night, the wagon train was corralled on a beautiful plateau overlooking the creek bottom, wide and green with great clumps of willows studying the green expanse. This was one of the ideal camps of the entire trip, and there were many. Each camp was made by corralling the wagons in the form of ellipse, half on one side and half on the other, drawing near together at the ends. The front wheel of one wagon close to the hind wheel of another with the tongues on the inside thus forming a corral into which the cattle were confined this served as a barricade if attacked by enemy in which case the oxen were rushed inside the wheels chained together also the opening at the ends making a fairly secure stockade the campfires were built on the outside of the corral usually and were extinguished at dark and the camp guard stationed. It was a beautiful sight a mile from camp standing upon the bluff to see the campfires and the shadowy groups standing or loafing around. Occasionally the words of a song were wafted to the ears of the watch on the hillside, then a shrill call of the bugle for prayer. Then the guard would see the boys gather about the central campfires and bow their heads in prayer. And as he stood beside his faithful steed, the lone guard would doff his hat, for he knew that the petitions at camp asking for peace and safety included himself as well. The next morning at the roundup, a yoke of oxen were missing and the train was delayed hunting for them. They were finally tracked down into the river-bottom where for miles the willows grew rank with fine glades of green grass between one of nature's finest parks. In those days lone travelers were frequently shot from ambush, scalped and robbed and left by the roadside, left a prey for the wolf and vulture unless discovered by a passing train and buried. Thus the single night guard that was finally left to hunt for the strays Spent a dangerous and tense day alone, but never gave up until as the sun's last rays were disappearing, he located the oxen and with them caught up to the wagon train late that night. Having not slept, he gratefully sank down on a quilt and slumbered soundly. The next morning the camp was awakened at daybreak by the most discordant din that ever saluted human ears. It being the first time that a night guard had slept in camp, the camp guards concluded to waken him in regulation style. Several teamsters were awakened and all the bake kettle lids assembled. When a man took one in each hand and using them like one would use a pair of cymbals, struck and ground them together, making one of the most hideous grating sounds imaginable. A few days travel over a beautifully diversified country with good grass, water, and fuel brought the caravan to Green River, the first formidable stream on the route. At this season, the great stream was at its height. The banks were full and the flood running at tremendous velocity and force. It took a full day to swim their herd of oxen across the swollen Green River. At this depot was left the first installment of return supplies. It was usual to take enough general supplies for the round trip, and those for the return were cached at various points on the way down. Two or three days before Captain MacArthur's train crossed Green River, one of the worst calamities happened to a train from Sandpete that we have any record of, in which ten young men were drowned and the bodies never recovered. Two yoke of oxen became excited and crowded to the upper side of the ferry, causing the boat to tilt. All the teamsters rushed to quiet them when the added weight and the current pressure overturned the boat, throwing all into the water. It happened so quickly that nothing could be done by those on the bank to save them. Crossing the large rivers on the old immigrant trail was a dangerous undertaking and often was attended with the loss of life and property. The next day at noon the camp stopped about ten miles from Benton City at the crossing of the North Platte, at this time the terminus of the Union Pacific Railroad. It was here that Wild Bill (William Hickok) was Marshal and Buffalo Bill (William f Cody) was a Deputy. That afternoon the train drove down to the beautiful banks of the North Platte and pitched camp. This was a most pleasant campground and the wagons were corralled on the banks of the mighty river now at its flood and as formidable as had been the Green River. Here was plenty of fuel and for miles in all directions an abundance of grass. Tall cottonwoods grew all along the river bank affording splendid shade. The oxen that at the starting two months previous were so poor that they could hardly stand were now fat and frisky. Another train of 50 wagons were camped four miles above the river, Captain Mullen from Cache Valley, and another train five miles below from Utah County with Captain Holman. All along the river at intervals as far as Laramie were seven other church trains and other independent trains awaiting for the immigrants from Europe and for the freight consigned to Utah. A number of the boys who had never seen a railroad train went to the terminus, Just as they reached the town, a freight train was crossing the great trestle bridge, the iron horse puffing and blowing and the brazen bell clanging as it drew the long train into the depot and stopped. The boys were filled with awe and amazement at the sight of the great giant of the Iron Way. Passengers at this time were transported only as far west as Laramie and from thence, in the old Concord coaches drawn by six horses. On the return trip, the weather was fine, there being but a few light storms. The pilgrims and freight were landed in the tithing yard in Salt Lake City the first week of September, never knowing what perils had been endured to meet them.